Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more, and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Daisy Fancourt. So Daisy, let's just start by me asking you who you are and what you do. I am an Associate Professor of Epidemiology at University College London, and my research focuses on the impact of things like social isolation, social engagement and loneliness on people's mental and physical health. So you're really on point in terms of what's going on in the world right now. But before we get into that, how's the pandemic affecting you? Where are you now? How are you having to live? I live in Surrey, and I think I've been incredibly fortunate with this in that I'm able to work from home. So I've been working on response to COVID, and my husband has been designing ventilators for COVID. So we've been very much focused on what's happening at the moment with the epidemic but we feel very lucky that we've been able to stay safe and well at home so far. I think it's a fascinating aspect of this that for a lot of people because they're ill or they have loved ones who are ill or because they're key workers this is really transforming their kind of lives and also for people who live in circumstances where it's really difficult to isolate. However for quite a lot of other people people I've spoken to and I spoke to Jeff Mulgan the other day you know he's in Luton he's got a big garden he's with his teenage children he said he felt guilty because in some ways he was quite enjoying the solitude and the chance to work. So I think one of the challenges for us is that people's experiences during this pandemic are so different, aren't they? They are. I think in many ways this is probably exacerbating what we call a social gradient. So the idea that there's this different social positioning for certain individuals based on things like their economic circumstances, because you're right, for some people who might have houses and big gardens and be able to feel financially secure enough in this situation, this could feel almost like a holiday from normal life. Whereas for other people who might be living in very small overcrowded accommodation with major stresses about how they're going to cope day by day, this could be their worst nightmare. So we're going to get into the insights that you're already collecting about how this virus is affecting people, how people are responding. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask every guest on Building Bridges to the Future, and that's this. Daisy, how do you think the world could and should change after the pandemic? Well, I'm particularly interested in the concept of community. It's something I've looked at a lot in my research over the last few years. And we've seen over the last few decades, much less of this sense of community in many countries in the world, people not necessarily knowing their neighbours, able to feel lonely, even when they're surrounded by other people, feeling very isolated. 
And something that's already happened during this is an amazing outpouring of support from people to strangers. And I hope moving forward from this, that that sense of community is something that we will continue to keep and build on within our society that will make the most of the new links and attachments we've made to other people and this sense of caring about people we've not even met and I hope that this will become a more normal part of life it's just a way that we live I worry that we might very easily return to the way that we lived before but at the same time I really am hopeful that this could be something that sparks a new sense of social responsibility and cohesion within society. I'd like to link the two points you've made so far because a conversation I had a few days ago I found quite kind of poignant which was somebody who said that their community was very active and they had a whatsapp group and there were hundreds of people on the whatsapp group all offering help but nobody on the group asking for help and as the person who told me this said the problem is that the social segregation means that in some communities there are all sorts of people with all sorts of resources and generosity and money and whatever to offer but they don't necessarily have links to the communities and the people who actually need that help. I think that's a really interesting point. Something that I've been really pleased to see is the Good Sam app that's been made available for people to help connect with others in their community. And for a while now, in my spare time, I've volunteered as a Samaritan. So I'm used to speaking to strangers on the phone and discussing what they're going through emotionally. But the Good Sam app is essentially providing that kind of Samaritan support. You can get notifications to say that somebody who's vulnerable needs your help and wants to have a phone call. And in that instance, people are being identified as vulnerable via, for example, the NHS. So it's it's specifically trying to get around that point you've just made about how do we find people who really need this help. But that's another thing that, again, I'm hoping this might continue afterwards, this sense where people can flag up and speak to strangers to support one another without it having to be necessarily a completely separate system that's run. It's really interesting you mentioned Good Sam because Jeff Mulgan, our first guest, he was running Nesta when Nesta was one of the initial investors in Good Sam. And it's quite an interesting example, I think, of social innovation that somebody creates something which is of value and was already of value, but it then comes into its own in a moment like this. And there's something interesting, isn't there, about how societies have those kinds of resources which may sometimes seem unnecessary or like a luxury or irrelevant, but they become incredibly valuable at a moment like this. Yes, with the Good Sam app, I think it's been amazing that we've had, it was at least three quarters of a million people last time I saw who'd signed up to be these volunteers. And I think it's it's a good point you make in that the technology was adapted incredibly fast. And I know we're seeing that across so many sectors at the moment, people having to adapt very, very quickly and repurpose things that had been available before, but to new audiences and to new needs. And I'm interested with this good sum up about whether this is something that can actually be maintained as a product going forwards. Can they continue to build this even after this epidemic as a way of helping to reach people who need that support? So this rapidity of innovation is one of the things that we're seeing people are having to invent things test things try things out in real time but this is also of course true in the world of your day job your academic research you're undertaking real-time research aren't you about the way in which this crisis is affecting people yes that's right So I think we were in a fortunate position in that we've been working on things like social isolation within my research group for a while now. So we were already familiar with the theories about how these things can affect our mental and physical health and also our behaviours. So we already knew what kinds of questions were going to be important here and the, the reliable ways of capturing these states that people might be experiencing. But you're right, we had to act in super fast time to be able to get everything through 
the necessary ethical and data approvals to get systems working and to be able to start recruiting people into a study. And we were really keen to move very fast because we wanted to get people before the lockdown started and in those early days of the lockdown, because we want to know how things are evolving for people week on week. If we'd started the study now, for example, we'd have missed out on a very valuable three weeks that would have shown people's transition into this lockdown period. So tell me, what are you learning? So with our study, the main aims of it are to identify how mental health and other psychological and social factors change over time for people over this epidemic. Also to identify who is most at risk, whether there are certain groups that are likely to experience particularly adverse outcomes disproportionately compared to other groups. And also whether there's anything that anyone can do that might help buffer against these potentially adverse effects. So we've been tracking to date over 60,000 members of the public across the UK. And this is a, a very well stratified sample. So we've got people covering every type of economic and demographic group. So we're able to do some really interesting analyses comparing the responses of individuals over time, but also depending on the circumstances that they're in. So we've been producing weekly reports on these findings, and we've been looking at a number of factors. We, we released a couple of early reports that looked at things like how people were behaving in isolation. So, for example, whether people were actually managing to keep doing any kind of physical activity, whether they were managing to have any kind of social interaction with others. And now we've moved more into looking at these trajectories in mental health over time and seeing how people are being affected as this lockdown starts to last longer. People have quite big mood swings. You know, there are moments when it feels okay and maybe you get a bit of good news about a friend you were worried about and you read that the figures have leveled off somewhere and the sun's shining and you think, well, maybe we'll come out of this soon. And then there are other days you, I don't know, hear about Boris Johnson being sick and the figures fly up and you become more worried about somebody. This kind of swinging in mood, is that something that you've noticed? Well, we've been asking people, they answer a questionnaire every week. So we've been asking about what's happened over the seven days prior to completing their questionnaire each time. So we're using a number of what we call validated measures. So psychological scales that are well known to capture quite accurately things like depression and anxiety. So we've asked people questions, for example, how often they've been having certain thoughts or feelings that are indicative of anxiety and depression over the last week. So that might range from not at all to one or two days to most days to every day. So we're capturing to a certain extent these swings that you mentioned. We're not looking at the sort of momentary analysis, you know, hour by hour about how people are feeling across the day. What we're particularly interested in is not necessarily those emotional shifts, but more about the larger mental health impact that this period might be having for people. So obviously a debate we're going to be having over the next few weeks is at what point and in what way should the government start to kind of lift the lid on lockdown? And presumably your findings, which tell us about how people are coping with this, are relevant to that. Because if you were, for example, to discover that a lot of people were suffering quite severe mental health challenges, that would be something in the balance of that debate, wouldn't it? It would. And in fact, we are actually engaged actively in those discussions with governments around things like lockdown. At the moment, we are starting to see certain trends. I mean, it's early days. We're only tracking the last three weeks so far, of which people have been in lockdown for just over a fortnight. And we are starting to see that there are some gradual increases in depression that are being experienced at a population level. So this means using our sample, which is very well stratified, but then we weight it against the national population so we can try and make inferences about a more representative population. So we are starting to see depression creep up, but at the same time, 
we're actually seeing that anxiety levels have decreased in the last two weeks, perhaps because people are getting more acclimatised to what's going on for them. We're also noticing there are shifts in the types of stresses that people are experiencing. So interestingly, since lockdown began, people have got a bit less worried about actually catching COVID themselves, which makes perfect sense because if you're able to stay at home, if you're not a key worker, then your chance of catching it is, is very low compared to if you're out and about. And we're also noticing that other worries, like things around food, for example, access to food, which was a big stress for people a couple of weeks ago, that's really started to decline over the last fortnight. So it's there are some things that we're particularly keeping an eye on, but at the moment we're not seeing dramatic changes at a population level. Now, that's not to say that there aren't individuals in this who are experiencing incredibly difficult situations. And certainly when we do subgroup analyses, we do see particular groups who are having a much tougher time in this. So particularly certain individuals with existing diagnosed mental health conditions are finding this a lot tougher. We're also finding that there is this social gradient that I spoke about earlier. So people who are living with lower household income, they're finding this a much more challenging time. And they're particularly having more worries about things like finance and unemployment. And we're also interestingly finding that younger adults are finding this harder than middle-aged or older adults, which makes a lot of sense if we think about it, in that their lives and the pattern of their lives have probably been the most disrupted by this. But you're right, this is something that's really crucial for us to keep tracking so that we can start to see if things dramatically change. And of course, as I've said, with that big caveat that regardless of what we're seeing at a group level, we already know that there are individuals who are having very, very difficult times. I know we're seeing reports of things like domestic abuse going on and of course things like suicide. So it's it's really important just alongside the larger data that we're collecting that there are also studies that are looking more at these individual experiences. And we're launching another study next week, which is using telephone interviews to try and pick up on some of these particularly adverse experiences people might be having. I guess in a way you'd say that it's not surprising that people in more challenging circumstances, people who had prior mental health issues are the ones who are finding this most difficult. Very important, I think, to remind people their experiences are very different. Is there anything in the data-daisy that has kind of surprised you or that isn't so intuitive, in a sense, in terms of differences between groups? Well, actually, already this is not fully intuitive in that there have been a few studies that have looked at isolation periods due to pandemics in the past. There was a rapid review that came out in The Lancet a few weeks ago, which identified studies that had looked at people during things like H1M1, SARS and MERS. And they'd actually found that relatively short isolation periods, so things like seven to 30 days, were associated with significant increases in mental illness, some of which lasted beyond the length of quarantine or isolation as well. And I think it's interesting we've not seen that so far in this epidemic. One possibility, of course, is that people have been warned from the start this is likely to be a longer lockdown. Therefore, they've known straight away that there's this need to try and adapt and get used to these new living situations for us. But I think this will be very interesting to see how long can we all hold out with this resilience and managing to cope? And at what point does actually does this start to change potentially even quite dramatically? And I think we don't yet know what that tipping point is going to be because there's never been a situation like this in living history. So we simply don't have the data at the moment to show how people are going to be affected. And are you thinking about the transition? Because we have tended to think about this crisis in a binary terms, which is there's the period of the crisis and then there's the world after the crisis. But actually, probably what we're going to have is the crisis, then a lengthy period of transition when things are different, when we have to get used to operating in different ways, and then 
possibly in a year or 18 months when there's a vaccine over, we might return to something that is like normality. How do we manage that transitional period where we're not telling people hard and fast rules, but we are going to be relying a lot on people being sensible, obeying norms, or else what the government's going to have to do is to continue to put the lid on and put the lid off. If every time they lift the lid off, we all kind of try to rush back to how things were. Yes, and this is going to be very interesting from a mental health perspective, because what our data research is showing so far is that people have got more confident and when there have been these stricter, clearer guidelines from government about what to do. And I think we can all relate to that in that uncertainty can breed anxiety. And actually, previous studies have suggested when we're not sure what the rules are, we tend to invent our own rules that aren't necessarily as appropriate. I agree with you that we're looking at what's probably going to be cycles in and out of a lockdown state. And what I'm very intrigued to see is are we going to find that people's mental health improves let's say when things are lifted off and they can start to go back to things that resemble normality a bit more even if they're not full normality or actually are people going to get more anxious because the rules aren't necessarily going to be as clear might they even have become a bit institutionalized from spending so much time at home so returning to these routines that open us up again to the world might actually be quite disconcerting And also when we're doing these cycles in and out, is it actually going to be that people start to find each period of having to spend more time at home tougher and tougher every time it comes around? And these are questions we simply don't have the answer to at the moment. But that's why studies like ours are so important so that we've got these real time data coming in. I'm really taken by what you say, because when the rules are simple, they apply to all of us equally and we don't have to second guess other people and other people's motives. I mean, I remember reading a tweet, I think, yesterday saying anyone who goes online to condemn people who are using parks or commons ought to attach to their tweet a ground plan of their own accommodation and whether or not they've got a garden, because it's much easier to be judgmental in those circumstances. And when I was going up to the common running and I do it earlier and earlier and earlier now, running at six o'clock in the morning, so there's virtually nobody there. But of course, you're aware of the fact that you personally have a rationale for what you're doing but so does everybody else so when the rules start to soften it's going to require us isn't it to make a lot more judgments and it's going to put more stress on our kind of solidarity and interpersonal trust i think you're right and interestingly it has been shown in studies that that kind of name and shame approach doesn't necessarily actually help behaviorally so calling people out doesn't actually mean that they're going to necessarily change their behaviours for the better. But I think it's very encouraging that we have seen very large scale compliance with the rules that are coming in now. And I think that's we've all had a sense of solidarity in this, you know, in it together, trying to support the NHS by not putting that extra burden on. But you're right, this is going to get trickier when the rules aren't as clear cut and when people can start to single out those who they think aren't doing their bit by staying at home. But we also have to recognise financially that there are going to be people who are desperate to get back to work because they're not secure that they're going to have that work. And even though some financial packages have, of course, been brought in, which is great, we still know there are people who are really struggling even in that situation. I also think there's another really important point here, which is that this is not going to be the last time we have something like this. You know, this has been predicted for a long time and we've had similar epidemics, although, of course, not on the scale of this one before. So I think we also need to learn from this what works and what doesn't work and make sure that we're better prepared for when this happens next time. There have been a lot of things that have emerged from this in terms of teething issues, to put it mildly, around lots of different sectors. And if we can learn from this now, particularly if we can start to understand the mental health profiles as well, we can make sure that the guidelines, the way people are communicated with and the support structures that are put in place are much stronger next time this happens. 
Daisy, it's been fascinating. We've nearly run out of time. So I've got three kind of quick fire questions to end with. The first is, I just talked about Twitter. One of the conversations we were having a lot before all of this was the impact of social media and different social media platforms on people's well-being. Is there anything in your research or is there anything that you yourself intuit about how social media is changing the nature of a pandemic and its social consequences in comparison to what happened before? It's a really interesting question. In our study, we actually asked for people's social media use, where they're relating to COVID or for non-COVID reasons during this period. And we're going to be exploring whether there are any patterns to do with this and also other things that we've spoken about before in society, things like screen time between this and mental health. And I think we've also seen a lot of interest also in epidemiology since this epidemic occurred on Twitter. So I'm expecting we're also going to see a lot of people now wanting to move into this space of understanding big public health challenges. The other question I want to ask you is that the RSA isn't, although we have arts in our name, we're not strictly an arts organisation, but we are fascinated by the role of arts and culture in society. I know that was also an area that you've talked about and researched in the past is that something else that you're looking at the role that art and culture and creativity can play for people at a time like this yes very much so this has been a very keen research interest for me and my team for a number of years now so we're again we're concluding measures on what people are doing creatively whilst they're at home. We've seen a remarkable outpouring of activities from the creative and cultural sector, providing home-based opportunities for people. Now, previous research suggests that these kinds of things should be helping. They should be supporting people's mental health and buffering against stresses. And we're really intrigued to see whether that's the case here as well. People who are managing to do creative hobbies at home, we're expecting to see these people are coping better, but we'll have to see what the data say. Well, Daisy, it's been a brilliant conversation. Will you come on again in a few weeks' time and tell us how this story is evolving and changing, uh, perhaps as we move into a transitional phase? I will be delighted. I also wonder if I can mention the survey website in case people are interested in taking part. Please do. Please do. So you can go to COVID19study, that's all one word, dot org, COVID19study.org. Great. Daisy Fancourt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.